have your Bibles, will you turn with me to John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 14. Last week we considered verse 1, John 1, 1, but this morning, John 1, verse 14, God among us, God among us. John chapter 1, verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Just thus far, may God bless His Word to us. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for this glorious verse before us. The Word became flesh dwelt among us. We desire, Father, that we might know your word, that we might at this time of year once again be thankful that our Lord Jesus Christ took flesh, came into this world. So we give you thanks. Give us ears to hear and hearts and minds to receive and to believe. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, before John gets to this verse, verse 14, let me remind you that he has divided up the, cha- the verses before, verses 1 through 13. For example, if you look, first of all, in verses 1 through 5, he introduces us to the Word, to the Logos. He tells us in verse 1 and verse 2 that the Word is a separate person. Right? He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He's a separate person, and not only separate, but he's a distinct person. He's distinct from God, yet he is God. And we consider together some of the great mysteries that surround John chapter 1, verse 1. In verses 2, 3, 4, and 5, he talks to us about the fact that the Word, who is separate, who is distinct, is the Creator. All things came into existence through Him, of course. Not only that, but He tells us that the Word is life itself and that the Word is light. So we have this opening introduction in John's introduction, verses 1 through 18, very powerful uh, portrayal of the Word, the eternal pre-existent Word, who now we discover in verse 14 came in dwelt among us and was flesh. That's the first thing we can see, verses 1 through 5. But look at verses 6, 7, and 8. We're introduced to John the Baptist, who makes the point of saying that he's not the light. He came to bear witness of the light. The light is none other than the Word. So the Word is coming. The Word exists. He is the light. John the Baptist comes to introduce us to the, to the light. John the Baptist says, that, or Uh, John says that John the Baptist was sent from God. He came as a witness, as a testifier to the light. He's not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. And then, in verses 9 through 13, on the third uh, place, notice that the light came into the world and was rejected. Notice verse 11, rejected by his own people. But notice verse 12, received by Those who are called the children of God. So we have rejection, and we have reception. 
rejected by his own people, the people of Israel, but received by those who are defined as being the very children of God. And notice how they are children of God in verse 13. In the negative sense, not by birth, not by descent or race, not by their power, and not by their willing. So how do these people who are defined as the children of God, become the children of God. They receive, of course, the word. They receive the life. They receive the light. They receive this one whom John came to bear witness to. They receive him as he is and for himself. They don't receive him because they are privileged by birth. They don't receive him because they are privileged by being of Jewish descent. Those are his own people who rejected him. They don't receive him because they have the power in them to receive them, to receive him, nor do they have the willingness, the desire to receive him. They become children of God simply by God's power, by God himself, by the light. They are children of the light, they are children of the word, by God's sovereign choice of them, by God's sovereign power. This we know, this is the teaching of the word of God. Now, verses 1 through 18 are the introduction, as we have said, to the Gospel of John. Yet, as an introduction, it's very profound, isn't it? Deep mysteries are unfolded and unveiled before us. But the rest of the Gospel is taken up with the fulfilling of what we read about in the first 18 verses here in the introduction. So, the rest of John's Gospel is simply laying out before the readers, before you and me, what John introduces in verses 1 through 18. And when you come and get all down to what it's really saying, it's simply this Jesus whom we are introduced to in verses 1 through 18, is going to prove himself to be, in the rest of the book of John, the Gospel of John, prove himself to be truly God. But how is he going to do that? Number one, he does it by these miraculous signs that he does. For instance, by the time you get to chapter 2, it's the wedding feast in Cana of Galilee. Jesus changes the water into wine. And we are told, they saw his glory. He manifested himself, he showed himself by doing miraculous signs. So Jesus proves himself to be truly God by being able to do these miraculous signs. That's the first thing. But then as he shows in the changing the water into wine, he manifests his glory. That's the second way Jesus proves himself to truly be God. He manifests his glory and people see his glory. In fact, John says... We have seen his glory in verse 14. The glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So verse 14, our verse, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Verse 14 explains how the eternal Logos, the eternal Word of verse 1, came to be a human being. Verse 14. Or as John puts it, he became flesh. He became flesh. So, this eternal Logos of verse 1 that we read about, who was with God, who was God, is now said in verse 14, to dwell among us, to become flesh. Now, let me just remind you, back in verse 1, that the Word is the eternal Word of God, the Logos, and there John is giving or presenting the Word to us as pre-existent or pre-incarnate. 
He has not, in verse 1, taken flesh to himself. That's verse 14. In verse 1, he has no flesh. He is the eternal word, the eternal logos. So verse 1 is pre-incarnation, but verse 14 is incarnation. The word became flesh and dwelt amongst. Very important to understand that. This word that we use in English, incarnation, is derived from the Latin incarne, which simply means to be in flesh or becoming in flesh. We get the word incarnation. John says, the Logos, the Word, He, the Word, who is the Creator, who is life, who is the light, He, that Word, He, in verse 14, took to Himself flesh. He became flesh. Or to put it this way, think of the time, or there was a time, when the Word was not flesh. That's verse 1, right? In verse 1, the eternal Word is not flesh. He is the Son of God. He is spirit. He is divine. And so when we think of when was the word not flesh, the word was not flesh back in verse 1. But in verse 14, he has become flesh. He has become flesh. So from verse 1, we also know that this word, who is preexistent, who was with God, is also said to be God. And we remember how we considered, we don't have two gods, three gods, including the Spirit. No, we have three persons in the Godhead, in the Trinity, making up the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That word who is God in verse 1 is now the word become flesh in verse 14. But will you notice that John does not say God became flesh. He does not say God became flesh. There's a reason why he says that, because that might suggest that the divine nature has been changed into human flesh. God became flesh. He doesn't say that. He doesn't want you to get the wrong idea that the divine nature has somehow changed into human nature. Nor does he want you to make the mistake of saying that God the Father has now become flesh. Because remember, you have the Word who was with God, was God. So you have in the beginning the Word and God, of course, is the Father. We know that from verse 14. We know that from verse 18. He doesn't want us to understand that the Word becoming flesh is God, the Father becoming flesh. Nor does He want us to understand that the entire Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit somehow have become flesh. No, he wants us to understand that this one single person, the Word, the Logos, that person within the Trinity, he and he only, the eternal, pre-existent, divine Son, he became flesh. The Father did not become flesh The Holy Spirit did not become flesh. It's only the Son who took humanity to Himself. What a mystery. Can you comprehend it? Can you comprehend what it meant for the Son of God, the eternal, existent, pre-existent Logos, to take our flesh to Himself? What What a humiliation. What a subjection that the Son underwent. Will you notice in verse 14 that the Word is said to be the Son? 
specifically the only Son from the Father. So that ties in with what we know from verse 1. The Word was with God, God the Father, and the Word was God, God the Son. Now said to be the only Son, this Logos, who is from the Father. Notice, from the Father, distinct from the Father, and separate from the Father. Not the same. Let's not make the mistake of modalism, that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are just three modes or three manifestations of God. No, we have three individual separate persons in the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And notice also in verse 14 that the Word, and also in verse 1, that the Word is the Son, and not only is the Son, but notice in verse 17, He is said to be Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. So now you know from John 1 so far, that you have the Word, who is said to be God. Not only that, but the Word, who is God, is actually separate, separate from God the Father, and of course God the Holy Spirit. And not only that, but the Word, who is God, is also the Son of God. And not only that, but specifically He's Jesus Christ. John has tucked so much theology, hasn't he, into 18 verses. He's just packed it in, right? That's why this is such a theological gospel. If you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, yes, theological, yes, entirely biblical, of course, but they portray Jesus in a variety of ways. But it's only John who really presents him to us as the divine Logos who became, word, became flesh and who dwelt among us. What John is telling us, and this is important for us to understand, it's not the divine nature that became flesh. Don't make that mistake. It's not the divine nature that became flesh or mixed with humanity. Did not mix with humanity, but he added humanity to himself, to his divine person. The divine person, the Word, the divine person, the Son, he became flesh, he became incarnate. I like what Richard Sibb says, the Puritan. He says that all three divine persons acted in the incarnation like three sisters, making a garment that only one of them got to wear. All three making a garment, but only one of them wears the garment. In verse 1, this word that we're talking about, he exists as divine. He's with God and He is God. He's divine. But in verse 14, this divine Word who exists and has always existed, verse 1, He now comes, it would appear, into time so that the divine person takes to Himself humanity, a human nature, and this is what we confess as Orthodox Christians. Not everybody who's out there who says they're a Christian confesses this, but this is orthodox doctrine, right? That the Son of God, the second person in the Holy Trinity, He possesses two complete, perfect, and distinct natures that are inseparably joined in one person. Notice, two separate natures, not confused, not joined together, Two separate natures, yet one person, namely, of course, 
our Lord Jesus Christ, who is said to be very God and very man at the same time. And yet one Christ, one Jesus of Nazareth. In the year 451, the Council of Chalcedon made some very important remarks about the Trinity and about the Son of God. And this is what they said about Jesus, the Son of God. That the distinctions of Christ's two natures are not taken away by their existence in one person. The distinction of the two natures are not removed, taken away by their existence in the one person. But that the properties of each nature, the properties of divine, the divine nature, the properties of the humanity of Christ, are preserved in the one person. Not that we have two persons, but we have one person who is the Son of God, who is the only begotten from the Father, who is God the Word, who is our Lord Jesus Christ. This is Johannine theology. This is what John wants us to understand. This is who Jesus is. Most of Christianity, I think, perhaps at this time of year, is occupied with the babe in the manger. With all the peripheral things, right, that go on. The fact that, you could, that Mary and Joseph couldn't find a room and what that meant. The fact that Herod uh, kills all the babies because the wise men haven't come and reported where Jesus is. All of those peripheral things, the shepherds in the field who come and worship and so on. But we might miss incarnation. Don't want to miss incarnation this Christmas season. We want to be grasping and understanding what it means to be flesh. This eternal word. We don't want to diminish. We must never diminish the word to being human. What we must say is that what we have in the one person of our Savior is someone who's fully divine, completely, totally divine, never gave up his divinity, always has been divine, and yet has added to himself our humanity, so that now he possesses two natures in his one person. Athanasius, you remember, the great defender of the faith, right? Contra mundum, against the world. He boldly says about this, he says, everlasting salvation is grounded in the necessity of believing faithfully the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. What Athanasius is telling us is that you cannot be a Christian if you reject the incarnation. You cannot be a believer in Christ if you do not accept this doctrine of the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the year 1571, the 39 articles of the Church of England were compiled. And this is what it says. The, it says that, that Godhead and manhood were joined together in one person, never to be divided. Two whole perfect natures in one person. Now, notice I said perfect natures. Divine is perfect. Humanity is perfect because Jesus has no sin. Your humanity is ruined. Your humanity is sinful and fallen. But what Jesus has done is to possess a humanity that is like ours in the flesh. And I'll show you that as we look at the text. But is a perfect humanity. Fully God and truly, fully, completely, totally man. 
That's what we believe. That's what we confess. That's the doctrine of the church. That's the doctrine of the Bible. That we have one person who has these two natures. If you hold to something else, in addition, Athanasius would say, you're not a Christian. You can't have whatever you want to have and add it to whatever you think the Bible might say. No, the the testimony of the church, yes, it's important. The testimony of church fathers, yes, it's important. But you and I only have one authority, right? The Word of God. That is our authority. Not the traditions of the church, not the traditions of men, but just simply what God has given to us in His Word. So if you want to know the truth about Jesus of Nazareth, you can only derive that truth from the Bible. You're not going to get Jesus of Nazareth from somewhere else. You're going to get Jesus of Nazareth only from the revelation that God has given of His Son in the Word of God. And can we trust that Word? Yes, because God's Word, which is from God, must be the truth and must be right and must be truthful because it comes from God as He describes Himself in the Bible. When I read verse 1 and I read verse 14, they're very profound. Very significant for my life and for your life. Because Athanasius says, if you don't believe those, either of those, you cannot be a Christian. We cannot believe, by the way, one or the other. You can't just believe verse 1 and not verse 14. And you can't believe verse 14 and not believe verse 1. They belong together. So you can't pick and choose what you may like or want to believe. Instead, what John is saying is, I'm giving you both. I'm giving you verse 1 and I'm giving you verse 14. And you must believe and receive and accept both of them. Both of those verses reflect deep mystery, don't they? How can you comprehend the pre-incarnate Logos? How can you comprehend that Logos becoming flesh? Dwelling among us. How can we understand these mysteries? But the Bible presents them. And declares them and shows them to us. So here we have two truths. In verse 1, the pre-existent word who is God becomes, in verse 14, secondly, flesh. So this conception that we read about in Mary's womb, right, is miraculous. I mean, that's, we all acknowledge it's miraculous, but it's virgin birth. But think about it this way. Gabriel says to both Joseph and Mary that the conception in Mary's womb, from Joseph to Joseph, by the Holy Spirit, to Mary, the power of the, over, of the Most High will overshadow you, so that the one who is to be born will be called the Son of the Most High, the Son of the Most High God. So Gabriel tells both Joseph and Mary that the conception is not normal, not natural the way it normally happens, but is by the Spirit of God. A unique conception. Can you understand how this eternal word is conceived in the womb of Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit? Isn't that miraculous? It's beyond us, right? What do we do with it? We believe it. Because we believe the word. We trust the word, what God has revealed. So the word who was, verse 1, has become in verse 14. He who was with God and was God has become, in verse 14, flesh. 
and is dwelt among. So notice that word, flesh. John does not say he became a man or he became a body. He doesn't say that. He says he became flesh. Now you know in the Bible, flesh has a number of meanings. For example, it may mean the flesh of my body, right? That covers my body, my flesh. It may mean my descendants. I have children and I have grandchildren. They are of my flesh, we might say. Flesh can mean my descendants. It can mean physical existence. Flesh exists. It can mean, and it does mean, of course, the sinful principle that is within us. And it also means enmity against God. That which is flesh is anti-God. But here, in verse 14, this is the very basic word for flesh, sarks. It's, it's a rather earthy word, simple word. What it means is that it refers to that which is truly human. That which is really human. But what does that mean in verse 14, right? The word became flesh. What John wants us to understand is that the word, he took to himself man's weakness, man's futility in his flesh, his, his, his mortality, his lowly condition, or as Calvin says, that which was mean and despicable. Jesus took Flesh to himself. Flesh in verse 14 is not the corrupt nature. The word became flesh does not mean he became corrupt. That is not what the meaning is. The word did not become fallen sinful human. It's not what it means in verse 14. But rather it's referring to mortality. Or as Calvin again says, that which is frail and that which is perishing. Jesus takes weakness to himself. Now just try and stop for a moment and comprehend the eternal, sovereign God the Son who humbles himself, takes flesh to himself, is born of Mary and is subject to all of humanity that is thrust upon him. John's declaration, frankly, is quite shocking. The Word, verse 1, who's with God, was God, the same was in the beginning with God, that Word has now taken to himself our Humanity, our flesh, the divine word, the eternal word, the creative word, the omnipotent word becomes frail humanity, becomes mortal man. What do we mean by mortality? He can die. He died. What do we mean by frail? He's weak. He gets tired. He sits at a well. He cries tears. This is our Lord. He gets hungry. This is the weakness, the frailty of our Lord Jesus Christ. Truly man. Athanasius says, your salvation depends on you believing that. Truly human. And yet truly God. This is such a Johannine thought. John loves this kind of thinking. In 1 John 4 verse 2 he says, By this you know the Spirit of God that every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Is that what you confess? That Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And then he says, 2 John 7, many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver 
and the Antichrist. So this is what we believe. And this is what we confess as Christians. The sovereign word in verse 1 through 5, who was with God, was God. Through him all things came into being, who is the creator. In him was life. He is life. And the light of men was in him. The light was in him. That sovereign logos has become frail man. Weak, mortal flesh. The only true God has become man. That's what John's saying. So the incarnation, which is a theological term, must be seen in the light of this biblical Trinitarian monotheism. Trinitarian, three persons. Monotheism, one God. Three persons, one God. That's the teaching of Scripture. This is how we see John 1 connecting to these great themes that we say we believe. The Bible teaches that God is one in His being. But that in the being of God, there are three persons, as we know. And one of those persons took humanity to Himself, became flesh. Or as Paul told the Romans in his introduction, in Romans chapter 1 and verse 3, that God's Son was descended from David according to the flesh. He's a man. And that this Son, in Romans 1, is Jesus Christ our Lord, who is also risen from the dead. This is Jesus. Now you know, if if you're witnessing to a lot of people, you might come across those who call themselves pantheists. Everything is God. The tree, the dog, the chair, the table, whatever you like. Everything is God. That's the pantheist. You come across them. Or you might come across, of course, the atheistic evolutionist who might look at the incarnation of Christ as nothing but another step in the biological evolution process. That's how you might look at it. He's not God. Or there is the polytheist. Okay? There are many gods, including Jesus. Many gods. Pick, your, pick the one you like the best. You have these kinds of theories, these ideas out there, but that's not how John gives us Jesus. John's very careful to portray Jesus as God, verse 1, who became flesh in verse 14. That, John says, that's what we believe. That's what we must believe. So John gives us this self-existing word, Back in verse 1, he's the person who became flesh in verse 14. But you know, John is a remarkable man. Because he provides proof that the Word became flesh. He provides proof. Look at verse 14. He says, and the Word became flesh and then did what? Dwelt among us. He dwelt, He lived among us. He means that God in the flesh was among us, and not just among us, but seemed to be among us. We saw Him. Doesn't He say that in His first epistle? That which we have seen, that which we have touched, that which we have handled, this life from God, this eternal life. You see that word, He dwelt? That's the word to tabernacle. That's the word to pitch a tent. Remind yourself of the Old Testament tabernacle for a moment. The Old Testament tabernacle was this beautiful structure. It was a tent in the wilderness. 
But you know what's interesting about that tabernacle in the wilderness? It is surrounded by the tents of the Israelites. Millions of Israelites surrounding the tabernacle, right? According to their tribal divisions, they surround that tabernacle. What's the difference between the one tent in the middle and all the other tents of the Israelites? One simple thing. God alone dwells in the one tabernacle. In that one tent, pitched in the middle of all the tents of Israel, that's where you find God. That's where you find His glory. The Shekinah glory. Remember, in the Holy of Holies, the cloud would come down, the fire by night, signifying the presence of God among His people. This is the word, this is the idea that John is saying, that God came and pitched His tent among humanity. And we saw Him, John says. I saw Him with my own eyes. I spoke to him. I heard him. I saw what he did. I've seen everything about this one who pitched his tent among us. This fleshly tent. I saw him. God in the tabernacle. That's what John says. He dwelt among us, he says. I saw his glory. You know, Jesus is really the true tabernacle, isn't he? In whom glory dwells, whose glory is seen. In fact, John Owen put it like this, that Christ alone is the true tabernacle where God dwells personally. Personally. So what do you have? You have frail, weak humanity. That's what you have. The frail, humble humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ which conceals His unspeakable majesty and glory. It's in there. You don't see His glory all the time, right? It comes out. It breaks through. Cana of Galilee, changing of water into wine. This was the manifesting of His glory. Or the disciples, Peter, James, John, on the Mount of Transfiguration. And Jesus is transfigured before them. And what does Peter say? We saw, we were eyewitnesses of the majestic glory on the holy mountain. We saw him in his glory. They were terrified. Right? They didn't even know what to say. Peter says, well, let's make three tabernacles. Three tents right here. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He didn't know what he was saying as if he could reduce Jesus in his glory and give him the same tent with Moses And Elijah. No. We saw his glory, John says. We were eyewitnesses of that glory. All of his glory. We saw him. That's why the Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, that this mystery is great that God was manifest in the flesh. Now I want to ask you a question. I mean, this is good theology, right? This is biblical theology. Does it really mean anything to you? Well, that's good. If it means something to us, right, then we're going to live it in the light of it. Because you see, tomorrow you go back to whatever job, whatever work, whatever is normal, per se, in life. Are you going to take the thought of John 1 verse 1, John 1 verse 14, and live it in the light of it? 
that the one who tabernacled among men was like me yet without sin then gave himself for me and he was filled with glory and full of glory his own glory his personal glory the glory of God shining in him so that what I do in my daily life as I interact with people as I try sometimes to witness to people just as I live my daily life is Christ shining in me and being seen by others. Because John says, I walked with him, I talked with him, so did the others. We saw him, we saw displays of his glory. We had the privilege, he says. They did not comprehend truly at that time who Jesus was. It would take a crucifixion, a burial, and a resurrection to see who Jesus was. And you and I, we have the privilege of, that's 2,000 years behind us. I can go back 2,000 years. How do I know it's true? Because here it is here in the Word, God's testimony of those events given for us by these authors that we read about. God testifying of His Son. This is the truth. This is real. Notice how John puts it in verse 14. He says, We have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. So this is Christ's own glory. Christ's personal glory, which you read about in John 17, 5, the glory he had with the Father before the world began. It's the same glory, right? Father and Son. Jesus did not lose his glory when he became a man. Jesus did not lose his glory when he added human nature to himself. He did not lose his glory. In fact, Jesus did not cease to be God when he added humanity to to himself. Now, if he added sinful humanity, if he was the son of Joseph, for example, then he's not the eternal Logos, and he's not the Word. John says, look, we saw his glory and all the miracles that he did. We saw them. We saw his glory and his character. Whoever spoke like this man, nobody spoke like this man, Right? That, that character that was full of grace and full of truth. We saw, we saw his glory in his words. Words of love, words of hope. In fact, we know that Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah chapter 6 saw the glory of Jesus in the temple when the Lord was high and lifted up the throne. Which Jesus says in John chapter 12, Isaiah saw my glory. So Isaiah the prophet saw the glory of Christ in the Old Testament temple. You see, one day Jesus, according to Matthew 25, is going to come in His glory. And all the angels with Him. And then He will sit on His glorious throne. I don't know if you've ever read the book of Ezekiel, but if you haven't, you better. Not you ought to, you better. Because in the opening chapters of Ezekiel, it's all about the departure of the glory of God from the Old Testament temple. The glory of God begins to move from chapter 8 through it to chapter 9. When you come to chapter 10, it departs Jerusalem. Gone. Temple abandoned. No God, no glory, tabernacling anymore. Just the judgment and the wrath of God. But now, in verse 14, the glory of God has returned, has come, and inhabits this temple, this tabernacle, taken up residence in the person of the beloved Son of God. It was God among us.
2,000 years ago. I often hear Christians say, I wish I could live back then. I wish I could be with the disciples. Didn't Jesus say, blessed are those who have never seen and yet have believed? Thomas wants proof, unless I see the nail prints, I will never believe. And what does he do when Jesus says, Thomas, reach out your hand. Put your finger here, put your hand in my side. No, he falls down, my Lord, my God. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That's you and that's me. What a privilege, right? Notice that this glory of Jesus in verse 14 is said to be full of grace and truth. What does that mean? Full of grace and truth. Well, grace is nothing less than God's loving kindness on display. Truth is nothing less than God's faithful covenant faithfulness being revealed. So that what you have here is the loving kindness of Christ is the covenant faithfulness of Christ revealed in His person, in His glory. You see, God saves us always, saves any people by covenant faithfulness, by mercies, by grace. And those covenant saving mercies have come to us with all of their divine majestic glory in the incarnate Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Word who became flesh. This is why Augustine could say things like this, God's Son assumed our humanity without destroying His divinity, that by His grace and truth, we as humans might come to God through the human man, Jesus Christ, who is the God-man. Why did John write his Gospel? He tells us at the end, chapter 20, verse 31, he says that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life in His name. That's why he wrote the Gospel, so that you would believe, that I would believe. I mean, this is what John says, right? Look here at verse 12 in chapter 1. He says, Those who receive and those who believe, they and they only are the children of God. They and they only are born of God and belong to God. These children of God. And what is it that they receive and what is it that they believe? They receive Christ. They believe in His name. What is that? That's true saving faith. To receive Christ and to believe in His name. Or to put it this way, true and saving faith is to believe John 1.1 and John 1.14. That's true saving faith. That the Word is God, our Sovereign, and that the Word is man, our Savior. That's what we believe. He's God, and He's man, and He has come, and He has saved us. So, What can we say about these things? Let me give you a number of things. Number one, verse 14, the Word became flesh, is God's revelation, not just for information purposes, right? This is not just for information. Add it up to the back of your mind, yep, I know that truth. John 1.14 is not just for information purposes, but for instruction, to change us. That we might be different, or to put it this way, like it says here, to receive it, to believe it. That all the saving benefits of redemption, which we celebrated in the 
remembering the death of our Lord Jesus, that all of those saving benefits of redemption have come to us by grace, by God's grace, only from the person of His Son. Or as verse 16 puts it, look at verse 16. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Don't you like that phrase, grace upon grace? What is that? That's abundant grace, isn't it? That's, that's a full grace, nothing lacking. Not only abundant grace, but abounding grace, right? It continues right now. This abounding grace to us. Not only abundant grace and abounding grace, but it is available grace to all who receive and who believe. They and they only are the children of God, the beneficiaries of the grace of God. That's the first thing. This is for our instruction that we might learn, that we might receive the grace of God. Second, without Jesus, without the Word, you can never know God. That's big. Without the Word... Without Jesus, you can never know God, or to put it another way, you would never know God. No matter how much you sought for Him, seek for Him, without Jesus, no saving grace, no saving faith. Notice how verse 18 puts it. It is the Word who is God, who is at the Father's side, who has made God known to us. Who made God known to you? It was the Word, the Logos. It was Jesus of Nazareth. He came and He showed you the Father. He revealed the Father to you. So you have no excuse. I have no excuse to say, I could never know. I never heard. Don't know. No. God sent His Son and by coming into the world, Jesus has revealed the Father to us. And here's the thing. If you have the Son... You have the Father. If you have the Son, you have the Father. Not, what does that mean? It means I'm in relationship to the Father and to the Son and of course to the Holy Spirit who indwells us. I'm in this relationship all because the Word took flesh to Himself. Thirdly, what my response to that? Surely it's worship. What else can it be? Humble, broken, adoring worship that Jesus loved me and came into this world, took my flesh, my humanity, so that he might die my death, that I might live. To have the Son is life. To have the Son is freedom. Is to have the Word with us forever. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, thank you so much for these great truths from John's gospel. How can we ever comprehend truly, Father, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us? That He has showered and lavished upon us His grace, His truth, that we might receive the loving kindness of God and might believe the covenant mercies of God. How we thank you for Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth, who loved us, who laid down his life for us, who was God in the flesh, who tabernacled among us. Oh, Father, may we see his glory afresh this morning, and may we say we believe and we confess the truth 
of what John says here in verse 14. So as we continue to go into the month of December, reminding ourselves of these glorious truths, we ask that the Holy Spirit would be the one to fill us with the love of Christ because of what Jesus did for us. May we know him by coming to him in faith. May we believe what he did for us at the cross. May we know that he died our death. He bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we might die to sin itself and live to God. Thank you for these truths. Thank you for this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.